Spotlight Connecticut with Morgan Cunningham. Embracing what's fun with Connecticut on WTIC News Talk 1080. I love this song. Diodato also sprock Zarathustra, the name of it. You'd remember it as theme from 2001, A Space Odyssey. I'm Morgan Cunningham as Spotlight Connecticut continues in vacation mode, but that just means that we're having fun looking back on some of our favorite episodes from 2023 so far. And I make sure that we say so far because we have half a year of brand new shows yet to come. Now, one of my personal favorites happened in February of this year when I had the chance to talk with Brendan Hall, who went to my high school. That would be Ram High School in Hebron. I'm from Andover. He's from Marlboro. And Brendan was an inspiration to me. He was two grades before I was. And he was part of our high school's closed-circuit TV news team, which meant that he was reporting and producing video work for a TV station that could only be seen and heard throughout our high school. And when I was new to high school, I said, I want to be part of this. But seeing Brendan's work just solidified that for me because what he did was really cool. And I learned a lot subsequently by getting into the program that he made popular with me and others as well. And after high school and after college, he continued to pursue not only photography, but video and Then I got the news at the very end of 2022 that he was going into outer space. And while all the TV stations got to talk with him for like a minute, you know, they have all those short news packages. I got to talk with him for a whole hour on Spotlight Connecticut about him going into space. And so coming up on WTIC News Talk 1080 as we enjoy the best of 2023 so far, my conversation with an old high school friend, Brendan Hall, Going into space. This is WTIC in Hartford. Hi, I'm John Heller from Granby, and I'm listening to Spotlight Connecticut with Morgan Cunningham on WTIC News Talk 1080. Well, I can't believe on the telephone with me is Brendan Hall. He and I went to high school together, Ram High School in Hebron, Connecticut. And he's now going to outer space as part of the Dear Moon crew. And I just got to say, I don't know how to start the conversation with you, Brendan, other than just saying congratulations to you, my friend. <laughs> Thank you so much. It's, uh, it's a pleasure to be here. I'm excited to talk about this. Well, so many years have passed since you and I have seen one another and have talked, and I should probably just fill the audience in It all began back in high school, Ram High School in Hebron, and you were a few grades ahead of me. When did you graduate? I graduated 2012. That's what I thought, 2012. I was the class of 2014, and when I was in, I believe it was freshman or sophomore year, you were part of Ram News, which was the closed-circuit TV news station for all of the students to watch, and there was an elite group of broadcast journalists, and you were one of them. And I remember you had come up with this introduction to Ram News, and it made me think to myself, I want to be part of that. And I guess that you've never <laughs> stopped with all of the photography and the video work, have you? Uh, no, I, I got really lucky that I was passionate about it from when I was young. I mean, I started making films around when I was in middle school with just a little camcorder in my yard. And so I did the school news. I, I was really lucky to have those resources at school and have a chance to take my passion and actually get to implement it in classes and, um, you know, with great people like you. There's nothing like being around other people that are passionate about the same thing as you. I've just for years chased that. And it's brought me to all these kind of different and eccentric places at times from documentaries. I made a lot of narrative short films in college. I filmed uh, skateboarding for a series of summers. And so for me, filmmaking has always been just kind of my way of meeting people and having new experiences. So long story short is uh, I kept making films (laughs) and now I'm lucky enough to do it for a living, which I think you can share too, Morgan, is to do something you're passionate about is it definitely keeps you going. It really is. And I'm trying to pinpoint what was the inspiration for you? Were you at home watching movies one day and you're like, this is cool. I want to experiment with this. Where did this itch from within you come? I I don't even think I quite realized this at the time, but I'd watch a lot of nature specials. I read National Geographic. 
and I watched a ton of movies. And so I was definitely really into it. But I just remember having kind of the itch to capture stuff. For some reason, just the idea of getting a camcorder, filming, I imagine, music videos and little movies with my friends was like the most exciting idea in the world to me. Um, and, And a lot of what I do now is just trying to take that wonder I had and that pure passion back then and during those years and make sure that's still a part of my day-to-day practice of doing this because as pressures come in and and doing it for a living uh, a passion starting so young really changes over time but I'm just really grateful to have gotten to grow with it a little bit too. Well before we talk about going to outer space which is next for you you have been exploring the whole mother nature planet earth thing tell us some of the places that you've been to for photography for video work so i mean i am lucky enough i've gotten to travel all over the world uh helping film documentaries helping film videos for brands um and so man i've been to greenland on a shoot with bill nye the science guy i've been to a lot of countries in africa uh, zambia um, nigeria tanzania I've been to uh, Iceland, uh, the Congo, all around the the United States, and I'm finishing a film now in national parks I've been working on for five years, actually. And so that film brought me to over uh, 30 different national parks in the United States. Who are you working with now? Um, National Geographic, another partner? I work as a freelancer. So I'm a director, cinematographer, and editor, and I have some really nice relationships with different companies, um, both that create films as well as brands like National Geographic. And so part of, I guess, the excitement, but some people would hate this, is the uncertainty of what I do is sometimes I never know where I'm going to travel even two or three weeks in advance. It's very much where jobs come to me and someone thinks I'm a good fit for something or I'm recommended, uh, and I get to go out and do that work. Wow, if you're learning just, say, two, three weeks before a big trip, you don't have a lot of time necessarily to research the project, or do you? Is that enough? (laughs) It depends on the project, you know. And with this space project, I'm lucky to have what right now is a year, but could end up being longer than that, to do uh, some deep research and take some time. Although that still feels like it's impending very quick. But uh, what I really like doing is improvising. So I think part of why I make documentaries is I like going into situations and having them present just moments that I can't expect or I can't dream up. You know, like when someone sees a landscape in Alaska and all of a sudden just in that one single moment, it all kind of wells up and and hits them. Like I really live for stuff like that. And so uh, Something I've learned over time is is the lifestyle that I live with making these films. I think some people would really love and enjoy, and others wouldn't at all, because some people like a bit more structure and certainty with with how things are going. So, uh, but, But so far, it's worked for me. Anybody just joining in now on Spotlight Connecticut, I'm Morgan Cunningham. Our guest is Brendan Hall. He and I went to high school together. He's a freelance filmmaker. Everybody wants us to talk about space, but we're going to stay grounded for just a little bit longer, not too much longer. I do have a question here. When you're going to a new location, how do you prepare for it, other than obviously packing up your bags and getting your suitcase ready and getting all of your gear in order? That's not so much what I'm wondering. But the research that you put in when you're thinking about going to Greenland or Iceland or South America, wherever it is, what are you thinking leading up to that trip about the project? It's different for every project. I think that I definitely do as much research as I can. I want to know the place. I want to know the climate. I want to know at least a little bit, um, ideally a lot, as much as I can about the culture, what we're going to be seeing. But a lot of those decisions also come from the storytelling and the filmmaking. Um, so a lot of the work I do is with with people and doing interviews and kind of diving into their personal stories. And so a lot of that research is talking to them ahead of time and kind of figuring out what that story is we want to capture when we're there. Or other times it's more expedition focused. So like Greenland, we were with Bill Nye, the science guy. And I was helping film uh, for a documentary on Netflix um, with these really great directors, uh, Jason Sussberg and David Alvarado. And the long story short is a lot of that, they had kind of a plan and we had a plan with the gear, but it was just rolling with the situation, you know, taking a charismatic person 
bringing him 200 miles from civilization onto a ice core drilling base and seeing what happens. And so it starts with the story, beginning with that dream and what do you want to capture and then researching the gear, you know, the clothing, the suits and, and all those limitations. All right, here we are. The anticipation is built. If I make the audience wait any bit longer, they're going to kill me. So, Brendan, let's talk about <laughs> space. Here it is, the the big conversation everybody's been waiting for. And my first question is really a simple one. How? How did this come to be, Brendan Hall, that you're going to space as part of Dear Moon? I've told this story before, but what really blows my mind about the whole thing was I, I heard about Dear Moon very much on a limb. I barely even remember first stumbling upon it. It wasn't something that someone sent me or that I'd been tracking to see when the applications would open up. But what I'll say is Yusaku Maizawa is leading the mission. He also goes by MZ. He had this vision of buying these seats on Starship uh, with SpaceX and bringing eight different artists and creatives on board uh, with this idea that we've seen uh, creative types go into space. Some of NASA's astronauts were very creative, but largely uh, they're scientists and they weren't civilians. And uh, this is a new perspective. I think that MZ's kind of whole pitch was what if Beethoven or Mozart had gone up into space? What would they have created? How would they have been inspired? Um, and I'm not saying I'm Beethoven or Mozart, but I do think that this group of honestly eccentric, but in the best way, and highly creative people will reflect this experience in a way uh, that we haven't quite seen before. So, so when I saw it online, just through an article, I could have gotten, done anything differently that day, and I might never have seen this article. So it was just pure uh, serendipity that I stumbled upon it. I just put in my name, I put in a couple photos of myself, and then that turned into uh, a whole selection process that actually lasted pretty much the whole length of 2021. So early in 2021, I applied online. That turned into a written response that I wrote up about some of my experiences, um, a one-minute video I ended up sending them, and then a series of interviews all the way through medical examination and psychological examination so we eventually all met up in person and did some group interviews and activities in person as well. And I specifically remember after doing the first Zoom interview where I actually saw real human faces and was talking to some of the Dear Moon staff, it went from being this like, not silly, but just like beyond uh, real kind of thing. You know, you just see something online, they're going to send you up to the moon and you're like, yeah, whatever. It's kind of like, you know, applying for the lottery. Um, but once I really did a Zoom interview and started talking with them, I felt just some really great energy. And I was like, you know what, I, I might actually be able to do this. At some point during these interviews and the conversations and you're meeting with the folks part of the Dear Moon crew and the team making it all possible, did you think to yourself, oh man, this is happening? Like before you actually knew you were going to be part of the crew, did you have this feeling that I should start getting ready for this? I started feeling that I'd done a solo Zoom interview. I'd done a group Zoom interview. I started getting a little real. I did a medical exam uh, Zoom interview with some doctors from SpaceX. Like, there's some of their medical staff. And that was just very cool to do and see what they asked me and all that. Uh, but then I did an in-person medical exam where I was actually flown out to UCLA Hospital to basically undergo, like, civilian flight uh, medical exams. Um, to see if I'd be qualified and healthy to do this. And so that for sure was um, a really unique moment and kind of turning point in the process for me because I realized that MZ was beginning to really invest in me as a potential candidate for this, um, as well as it, it was kind of rigorous testing and things where I realized that that applicant pool um, we're over a million people applied for this online, which I'm still baffled by. Not that that many people apply, but that I'm in the eight chosen for it. But I'd say it was during those medical examinations. It started getting pretty real. I remember after that, uh, I, go, I go through this day. I'm like seeing my heart health and doing an EKG and chest and spine x-rays and all this stuff. And then in a couple of days after, I just hung out in Los Angeles with my girlfriend, Gabby, and that's when we really started having real conversations and reflection about all this. So I think that was the time I started saying some of the classic stuff of like, man, you got to get in shape. You know, you got to start making as good of decisions as you can. Uh, it's just a wild ride. 
absolutely a wild ride. And you're talking with your girlfriend and your family, obviously, about this before and certainly after you've been chosen. How did they react to the news that you're going to space? Oh, man. Yeah. So when the moment I learned was Thanksgiving time of 2021, uh, the Dear Moon team said, we want to do one final interview with you, ask you some questions, get to know you just a little bit better before we make our final decisions. And so I sat down in front of my laptop, like I got my lighting ready, you know, all dressed nice. uh, And then a Zoom screen came up. And every time it was really kind of daunting because like the little pinwheel would come up for Zoom and I'd just be sitting there waiting a minute or two until all of a sudden Dear Moon would come up and this like incredibly important (laughs) interview in my life that could totally change my life was about to happen. Uh, Kind of felt like a job interview on steroids. And so I was sitting there and I thought it was another interview and then the little pinwheel came up and it was just MZ just sitting there in a sweatshirt. And I was like, hey, <laughs> how you doing? And he started talking to me. We made some small talk. And then he said, do you want to know the results of Tier Moon? We've made our decisions. And that's when he said, uh, I'd like you to be a crew member. Uh, would you like to join me on this mission? And so in that moment, I just fell back in my chair. I mean, I couldn't even believe it. Uh, and time just kind of froze in that moment, right, when I knew I was about to hear the results because it was like, I grew up, <laughs> I watched some American Idol with my mom growing up. And I remember that moment of you're waiting to see who the winner's going to be. And in my own, like maybe miniature or big version of that, I mean, the stakes are pretty high. It felt like that, right? It's like this one moment that's about to change the entire course of your life. What was great was Gabby, my girlfriend, was actually on the other side of the door. And then she listened in through the door. And when I was selected in the call and did she open the door and she was crying and I had tears in my eyes and that was amazing. And then I waited to tell my parents in person over Thanksgiving and it was a mixture of joy and tears, happy tears um, in disbelief, but also that really serious uh, moment when my mom turned to me and she said, she was like, don't die. Like, I can't, I can't lose you. I can't have anything happen to you. And I support you doing this. And this is such an incredible thing, but uh, just know like this is this is a real decision you're making but also I kept it pretty secret and I had to because the global announcement was a, a year for a whole year I had quite a few friends and people I was interacting with consistently that had no idea you mentioned how your mom's reaction was don't die have you been worried at all about any kind of mishap what are your emotions about that aspect the safety and the potential danger involved. Yeah, no, and it's a really important question. It's one I still take very seriously. And I made the decision, I think, based on feeling like this was something special, feeling like, aside from just the historic nature of it, I mean, we'd be, or will be the first civilian crew ever in deep space and ever around the moon, and kind of potentially help be pioneers of this new era of privatized space flight feeling that gravity that I could be a part of something like that, uh, talking to MZ and really getting a sense that his intentions were pure and that he wanted to do something meaningful with this and believing that deeply, which I still do. Those are the reasons I decided to do this. At the end of the day, like life's short and so much can happen. You never know what's going to happen. And so many kind of impossible, improbable things led to that moment of me being selected where I kind of decided during that process that if I get selected for this, I've decided I'm going to take the leap and go for it. This is WTIC in Hartford. Hi, I'm John Heller from Granby, and I'm listening to Spotlight Connecticut with Morgan Cunningham on WTIC News Talk 1080. Well, I can't believe on the telephone with me is Brendan Hall. He and I went to high school together, Ram High School in Hebron, Connecticut. And he's now going to outer space as part of the Dear Moon crew. And I just got to say, I don't know how to start the conversation with you, Brendan, other than just saying congratulations to you, my friend. <laughs> Thank you so much. It's, uh, it's a pleasure to be here. I'm excited to talk about this. Well, so many years have passed since you and I have seen one another and have talked, and I should probably just fill the audience in It all began back in high school, Ram High School in Hebron, and you were a few grades ahead of me. When did you graduate? I graduated 2012. That's what I thought, 2012. I was the class of 2014. 
And when I was in, I believe it was freshman or sophomore year, you were part of Ram News, which was the closed circuit TV news station for all of the students to watch. And there was a, an elite group of broadcast journalists, and you were one of them. And I remember you had come up with this introduction to Ram News, and it made me think to myself, I want to be part of that. And I guess that you've never <laughs> stopped with all of the photography and the video work, have you? I uh, know. I, I got really lucky that I was passionate about it from when I was young. I mean, I started making films around when I was in middle school with just a little camcorder in my yard. And so I did the school news. I, I was really lucky to have those resources at school and have a chance to take my passion and actually get to implement it in classes and, um, you know, with great people like you. There's nothing like being around other people that are passionate about the same thing as you. I've just for years chased that. And it's brought me to all these kind of different and eccentric places at times from documentaries. I made a lot of narrative short films in college. I filmed uh, skateboarding for a series of summers. And so for me, filmmaking has always been just kind of my way of meeting people and having new experiences. So long story short is uh, I kept making films. <laughs> and now I'm lucky enough to do it for a living, which I think you can share it too, Morgan, is to do something you're passionate about. Is It definitely keeps you going. It really is. And I'm trying to pinpoint what was the inspiration for you. Were you at home watching movies one day and you're like, this is cool, I want to experiment with this? Where did this itch from within you come? I, I don't even think I quite realized this at the time, but I'd watch a lot of nature specials. I read National Geographic and I watched a ton of movies. And so I was definitely really into it. But I just remember having kind of the itch to capture stuff. For some reason, just the idea of getting a camcorder, filming, I imagine, music videos and little movies with my friends was like the most exciting idea in the world to me. Um, and, and a lot of what I do now is just trying to take that wonder I had and that pure passion back then and during those years and make sure that's still a part of my day-to-day -day practice of doing this. Because as pressures come in and, and doing it for a living, uh, a passion starting so young really changes over time. But I'm just really grateful to have gotten to grow with it a little bit, too. Well, before we talk about going to outer space, which is next for you, you have been exploring the whole Mother Nature, Planet Earth thing. Tell us some of the places that you've been to for photography, for video work. So, I mean, I am lucky enough. I've gotten to travel all over the world, uh, helping film documentaries, helping film videos for brands. Um, and so, man, I've been to Greenland on a shoot with Bill Nye, the science guy. I've been to a lot of countries in Africa, uh, Zambia, um, Nigeria, Tanzania. I've been to uh, Iceland, uh, the Congo, all around the, the United States. And I'm finishing a film now in national parks I've been working on for five years, actually, and so that film brought me to over uh, 30 different national parks in the United States. Who are you working with now? Um, national Geographic, another partner? I work as a freelancer. So I'm a director, cinematographer, and editor. And I have some really nice relationships with different companies, um, both that create films as well as brands like National Geographic. And so part of, I guess, the excitement, but some people would hate this, is the uncertainty of what I do is, Sometimes I never know where I'm going to travel, even two or three weeks in advance. It's very much where jobs come to me, and someone thinks I'm a good fit for something, or I'm recommended, uh, and I get to go out and do that work. Well, if you're learning just, say, two, three weeks before a big trip, you don't have a lot of time necessarily to research the project, or do you? Is that enough? <laughs> it depends on the project, you know. And with this space project, I'm lucky to have what right now is a year, but could end up being longer than that to do uh, some deep research and take some time. Although that still feels like it's impending very quick. But uh, what I really like doing is improvising. So I think part of why I make documentaries is I like going into situations and having them present just moments that I can't expect or I can't dream up. You know, like when someone sees a landscape in Alaska, and all of a sudden, just in that one single moment, it all kind of wells up and, and hits them. Like, I really live for stuff like that. And so uh, 
something I've learned over time is, is the lifestyle that I live with making these films. I think some people would really love and enjoy and others wouldn't at all because uh, some people like a bit more structure and certainty with, with how things are going. So, uh, but, but so far it's worked for me. Anybody just joining in now on Spotlight Connecticut, I'm Morgan Cunningham. Our guest is Brendan Hall. He and I went to high school together. He's a freelance filmmaker. Everybody wants us to talk about space, but we're going to stay grounded for just a little bit longer, not too much longer. I do have a question here. When you're going to a new location, how do you prepare for it, other than obviously packing up your bags and getting your suitcase ready and getting all of your gear in order? That's not so much what I'm wondering. But the research that you put in when you're thinking about going to Greenland or Iceland or South America, wherever it is, what are you thinking leading up to that trip about the project? It's different for every project. I think that I definitely do as much research as I can. I want to know the place. I want to know the climate. I want to know at least a little bit, um, ideally a lot, as much as I can about the culture and what we're going to be seeing. But a lot of those decisions also come from the storytelling and the filmmaking. Um, so a lot of the work I do is with with people and doing interviews and kind of diving into their personal stories. And so a lot of that research is talking to them ahead of time and kind of figuring out what that story is we want to capture when we're there. Or other times it's more expedition focused. So like Greenland, we are with Bill Nye, the science guy. And I was helping film uh, for a documentary on Netflix um, with these really great directors, uh, Jason Sussberg and David Alvarado. And the long story short is a lot of that, they had kind of a plan and we had a plan with the gear, but it was just rolling with the situation, you know, taking a charismatic person, bringing him 200 miles from civilization onto a ice core drilling base and seeing what happens. And so it starts with the story, beginning with that dream and what do you want to capture? And then researching the gear, you know, the clothing, the suits, and, and all those limitations. All right, here we are. The anticipation is built. If I make the audience wait any bit longer, they're going to kill me. So, Brendan, let's talk about <laughs> space. Here it is, the, the big conversation everybody's been waiting for. And my first question is really a simple one. How? How did this come to be, Brendan Hall, that you're going to space as part of Dear Moon? I've told this story before, but... What really blows my mind about the whole thing was I, I heard about Dear Moon very much on a whim. I barely even remember first stumbling upon it. It wasn't something that someone sent me or that I'd been tracking to see when the applications would open up. But what I'll say is Yusaku Maizawa is leading the mission. He also goes by MC. He had this vision of buying these seats on Starship uh, with SpaceX and bringing eight different artists and creatives on board. Uh, with this idea that we've seen uh, creative types go into space. Some of NASA's astronauts were very creative, but largely uh, they're scientists and they weren't civilians. And uh, this is a new perspective. I think that MZ's kind of whole pitch was, what if Beethoven or Mozart had gone up into space? What would they have created? How would they have been inspired? Um, and I'm not saying I'm Beethoven or Mozart, but I do think that this group of honestly eccentric, but in the best way, and highly creative people will reflect this experience in a way uh, that we haven't quite seen before. So, so when I saw it online, just through an article, I could have gotten, done anything differently that day, and I might never have seen this article. So it was just pure uh, serendipity that I stumbled upon it. I just put in my name, I put in a couple photos of myself, and then that turned into uh, a whole selection process that actually lasted pretty much the whole length of 2021. So early in 2021, I applied online. That turned into a written response that I wrote up about some of my experiences, um, a one-minute video I ended up sending them, and then a series of interviews, all the way through medical examination and psychological examination. So we eventually all met up in person and did some group interviews and activities in person as well. And I specifically remember after doing the first Zoom interview where I actually saw real human faces and was talking to some of the Dear Moon staff, it went from being this like, not silly, but just like beyond uh, real kind of thing. You know, you just see something online, they're going to send you up to the moon and you're like, yeah, whatever. It's kind of like, you know, applying for the lottery. Um, but once I really did a Zoom interview and started talking with them, I felt just some really great energy. And I was like, you know what, I, I might actually be able to do this. 
at some point during these interviews and the conversations and you're meeting with the folks part of the Dear Moon crew and the team making it all possible, did you think to yourself, oh man, this is happening? Like before you actually knew you were going to be part of the crew, did you have this feeling that I should start getting ready for this? I started feeling that I'd done a solo Zoom interview. I'd done a group Zoom interview. I started getting a little real. I did a medical exam uh, Zoom interview with some doctors from SpaceX. Like there's some of their medical staff. And that was just very cool to do and see what they asked me and all that. Uh, But then I did an in-person medical exam where I was actually flown out to UCLA hospital to basically undergo like civilian flight uh, medical exams. Um, to see if I'd be qualified and healthy to do this. And so that for sure was um, a really unique moment and kind of turning point in the process for me because I realized that MZ was beginning to really invest in me as a potential candidate for this, um, as well as it it was kind of rigorous testing and things where I realized that that applicant pool, um, where over a million people applied for this online, which I'm still baffled by. Not that that many people apply, but that I'm in the eight chosen for it. But I'd say it was during those medical examinations. It started getting pretty real. I remember after that, uh, I, go, I go through this day. I'm like seeing my heart health and doing an EKG and chest and spine x-rays and all this stuff. And then in a couple of days after, I just hung out in Los Angeles with my girlfriend, Gabby, And that's when we really started having real conversations and reflection about all this. So I think that was the time I started saying some of the classic stuff of like, man, you got to get in shape. You know, you got to start making as good of decisions as you can. Uh, It's just a wild ride. Absolutely a wild ride. And you're talking with your girlfriend and your family, obviously, about this before and certainly after you've been chosen. How did they react to the news that you're going to space? Oh, man. Yeah. So... When the moment I learned was Thanksgiving time of 2021, uh, the Dear Moon team said, we want to do one final interview with you, ask you some questions, get to know you just a little bit better before we make our final decisions. And so I sat down in front of my laptop, like I got my lighting ready, you know, all dressed nice. uh, And then a Zoom screen came up. And every time it was really kind of daunting because like the little pinwheel would come up for Zoom and I'd just be sitting there waiting a minute or two until all of a sudden Dear Moon would come up and this like incredibly important <laughs> interview in my life that could totally change my life was about to happen. Uh, kind of felt like a job interview on steroids. And so I was sitting there and I thought it was another interview and then the little pinwheel came up and it was just MZ just sitting there in a sweatshirt. And I was like, hey, (laughs) how you doing? And he started talking to me. We made some small talk. And then he said, do you want to know the results of Dear Moon? We've made our decisions. And that's when he said, "Uh, I'd like you to be a crew member. Uh, Would you like to join me on this mission? And so in that moment, I just fell back in my chair. I mean, I couldn't even believe it. Uh, And time just kind of froze in that moment, right, when I knew I was about to hear the results because it was like, I grew up, (laughs) I watched some American Idol with my mom growing up. And I remember that moment of you're waiting to see who the winner is going to be. And in my own, like maybe miniature or big version of that, I mean, the stakes are pretty high. It felt like that, right? It's like this one moment that's about to change the entire course of your life. What was great was Gabby, my girlfriend, was actually on the other side of the door. And then she listened in through the door. And when I was selected in the call ended, she opened the door and she was crying and I had tears in my eyes and that was amazing. And then I waited to tell my parents in person over Thanksgiving and it was a mixture of joy and tears, happy tears um, in disbelief, but also that really serious uh, moment when my mom turned to me and she said, she was like, don't die. Like, I can't, I can't lose you. I can't have anything happen to you. And I support you doing this. And this is such an incredible thing, but uh, just know like this is this is a real decision you're making but also I kept it pretty secret and I had to because the global announcement was a, a year for a whole year I had quite a few friends and people I was interacting with consistently that had no idea you mentioned how your mom's reaction was don't die have you been worried at all about any kind of mishap what are your emotions about that aspect the safety and the potential danger involved. Yeah, no, and it's a really important question. It's one I still take very seriously, and 
I made the decision, I think, based on feeling like this was something special, feeling like, aside from just the historic nature of it, I mean, we'd be, it will be the first civilian crew ever in deep space and ever around the moon and kind of potentially help be pioneers of this new era of privatized space flight. Feeling that gravity that I could be a part of something like that, uh, talking to MV and really getting a sense that his intentions were pure and that he wanted to do something meaningful with this and believing that deeply, which I still do. Those are the reasons I decided to do this. At the end of the day, like life's short and so much can happen. You never know what's going to happen. And so many kind of impossible, improbable things you know, led to that moment of me being selected where I kind of decided during that process that if I get selected for this, I've decided I'm going to take the leap and go for it. Spotlight Connecticut with Morgan Cunningham. As we look back on some of my favorite episodes and some of the more memorable ones, this one stirred the pot. And that was not the point. It wasn't intended to be controversial. But here's the thing. This is what I've never talked about publicly. Some of the episodes have gotten a reaction. Well, why didn't you do this? Why did you do that? Why did you talk to this person? Why didn't you go there? You know, and... And that's not necessarily anything unique to my talk show. That happens a lot when you work in media. People are always criticizing and offering feedback and making suggestions and making idea suggestions and requests. So that's fine. It comes with the job. Um, but it happens with some episodes more than others. But this one really stood out because the backlash I got for this episode was absolutely incredible. I wanted to do a show on soda because here in Connecticut, there are several places that actually manufacture and sell their own soda. And I wanted to do a show on a place that people don't know about. That's the whole point of Spotlight Connecticut. So I went over to Hosmer Mountain Soda in Willimantic and I recorded a show with them. But I was bombarded with remarks from strangers in the audience, from coworkers at the station, from personal friends all saying to me, why didn't you go to Avery's? Morgan, why didn't you go to Avery's? Avery's is, you know, a greater Hartford phenomenon, and they have that market cornered, but Hosmer Mountain has Eastern Connecticut cornered, and they're there with bears at Duncan Park and all of that. And so I learned a lot just by going to Hosmer's and doing something different. But here's what I've got to say to the fans of Avery's. It was not intentional. It was just the way things worked out, and I'd love to do a show on Avery's. I don't know when I'll get to it, but it is part of the to-do list, so do not worry. There will be a show on Avery's. We're only a year old here, folks. We'll get to it. This is WTIC in Hartford. Hi, my name is Sue. I'm from Rocky Hill, and I'm listening to Spotlight Connecticut with Morgan Cunningham. Our guest this week on Spotlight Connecticut is one of the owners at Hosper Mountain Soda in Willimantic. They distribute sodas throughout eastern Connecticut for the most part. Maybe they do some parts of Rhode Island and some parts west of the river, but it's mostly eastern Connecticut. Bill Potvin's our guest, and I just love his last name because it's French. It means jug of wine, which is just so appropriate because your whole family has been part of the beverage industry now for several decades. <laughs> yes. When I was about 10 or 11, my father bought the company from the previous uh, the widow of uh, the owner who had passed away around 55 from a heart attack. It was probably on the downward swing then because that was a time when a lot of little bottlers were being pushed out by the, the corporate uh, wave that covers all pretty much all businesses in the country. But when I was 11, me and my brother John worked with my dad right here in this space we're standing in right now. Let's talk about the business model here at Hosmer's Mountain because you guys have partnerships with restaurants and other businesses, mostly across eastern Connecticut, maybe uh, some other parts of the state, I imagine, but it's largely uh, focused on eastern Connecticut. It is. A little bit of Rhode Island, too, maybe? Uh, not too much, but we do have one distributor that goes into Rhode Island. Our own trucks don't go that far our own try we still self-distribute in northeast connecticut which that involves some of the old towns uh, like putnam danielson uh and we do we still do some home delivery too but i would say a good part of our business now is restaurants that like to have a uh, a, a local product. <clears throat> We're very fortunate there's been a trend towards more appreciation for local thank god. <clears throat> you mentioned home delivery really? I think home delivery got us through years and years when uh, 
it was we were the only people that would do that we we, <laughs> we had probably i'm guessing we had as many as 1800 customers that we would call up every other week usually every other week a telephone call uh what would you like this week type of thing and the other little bottlers who were still going on they did the, the same thing so it was a little model that it was a niche uh, that you had to yourself the big people weren't going to do anything my dad had written on his step vans which he had then we don't have the step van type of truck but his the, the slogan back then in around 1962 was delivered to your door for less than a store i.e he was actually we were bringing soda to somebody's house for less than they would pay at the market which at when you think about that you'll say how can a company Ex pay for the gas and a driver and everything and save somebody some money yeah. on top of it he that was a mistake in a way because he should have been getting a premium for that level of service really and we would mix a case too you could get a case with different flavors in it so but it was something that it it's faded a little bit but we still have people who are loyal users under that system uh, it's not like a milkman where you bring something automatically. You want to make sure somebody want, uh, approves of the delivery and they can change their order each time. We still do that. You have a guy that does the deliveries or somebody that drives the truck around the state every day or every yeah. few days? Yeah, we have two, two or three trucks and we, we do our routes regularly. They're called from here in this store. 217 Mountain Street, Willie, and we have another store in Manchester, the Hosmer Mountain Soda Shack, that he calls the routes that were out a little further away. We go as far as Enfield, Suffield, and, and uh, Vernon, Manchester, all out that way, come out of the Manchester store. Yeah, shout out to the Manchester CJ's restaurant because that's what ended up leading me to here. I've known about you guys forever, and I've been doing this talk show now for a few months. I went to CJ's, and I was there with my mom. We were getting lunch. And I said, oh, I'll have a Hosmer's. And as I'm drinking it, I said, wait a second. I ought to have them on the talk show. So here we are talking about Hosmer Mountain Soda in Willimantic, serving eastern Connecticut. I love how you guys have a lot of paper systems, right? There's something old school. You, you break out the binder. I see it in the office there. You've got your client list. You've got your information. Talk about the system, how you guys keep this place organized. Well, we're a small business, so... We, we still do things that are, I would call them somewhat comforting to the consumer. When somebody calls Hosmer, you don't go through all that crazy stuff. A person calls up Hosmer Mountain, can I help you? We return calls. Everybody who would, has some kind of a problem or a curiosity or, you know, uh, we get calls like, uh, uh, is, there, is this stuff in, in the product? For instance, somebody who's got celiac disease. So, gluten. Gluten. Yeah, gluten, yeah. Is your soda gluten-free? So I get a note from, from the, the clerk, might leave little notes, and I'll call back personally and, 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 and you know, tell them that we don't use gluten. You know, there's no reason to have gluten in, uh, in a soda, you know. Uh, so th those are the kind of things that small business does that are nice to the consumer where you actually get some attention we we care you always care because when you're a small company it's easy to care when every customer is a, a significant part of your business whereas if, if you're pounding out multiple million dollars one customer is you can shed it without any pain at all and uh, generally i try not to think that way what do you hear from businesses that partner with you guys? We have we also sell syrup to restaurants. So, for instance, probably our biggest customer is Bear's Smokehouse. Jamie McDonald was uh, a person who was in the barbecue business out in I think it was Kansas City when he came to the East here. He, he it didn't take him too long to find out that there was this company that makes a variety of real tasty soda, and so he decided to. Uh, call us and ask us if we were willing to extend our business and we were in the syrup business already but we we latched on to his account and who would have known he's he's got contracts with uh yukon he's a very uh you know promoter of, uh, he's all over the place yeah, the, and so he has uh front street which is where yukon moved their west hartford school so there's a lot of people down there and he's got a big one up near the airport in windsor uh, and they use a lot of syrup, you know, a big, big cup of syrup with free refills. And sometimes people who go to barbecue 
uh, places. Uh, they're not a calorie conscious, you know. They're looking for a, a, a tasty meal, you know. Right, they're going to the sporting event. They want their tasty meal. <laughs> so this syrup, it's not pancake syrup. We're talking about soda syrup. Yeah, it's the same syrup that would go into a bottle. When you make soda, there's one part of that syrup with five parts of carbonated water. That's how we bottle it. Those machines that you go to McDonald's or any that dispenser does the same thing as a bottling machine. It'll take one little line with a squirt of a certain flavor that you selected, and five parts of carbonated water will mix right in the cup. So it's the same identical process. So we can take our syrup for any flavor, put it into a, a box of syrup, a plastic bag and a corrugated box, and then deliver it to a restaurant and then they, they, and we got a, a good price advantage over the big guys. Uh, so we can save restaurants a lot of money. We're not installing any more equipment because me and my brothers are going through our 70s. So we're not thinking the same way we thought when we were 30. Let's leave it at that. Our guest this week on Spotlight Connecticut is a great guy, Bill Potvin. He is a vice president here at Hosmer Mountain Soda in Willimantic, which is where I am. I'm in the store right now, the retail store. Give me some numbers, right? So when you're making a run of soda, about how many bottles do you make? How many different flavors? Is it one flavor a day? You make a thousand bottles. How much syrup you go through? I'm curious. It's a good question. There's a minimum. My brother, who's the uh, president and the uh, general manager, the bottler, He's always been very, we've had difficulties over the time because I'm, I want to learn something when I, especially in the days when I was trying to improve the product. If you made a batch of soda that lasted three or four months, then I couldn't, if I realized I had to make another tweak on it, I have to wait. So I was always encouraging small runs, but he won't make any run now that's less than uh, two pallets. 130 cases is the is the minimum so in a given day if we're making three or four flavors of that level we can make three or four of those in a day some of our bigger sellers you would never make that size batch of root beer for instance our number one seller so we would make a batch of 450 cases of root beer at a clip so that would take two-thirds of a day you might be able to make one of them in a and another batch of a smaller one in per day. So uh, the size of the batch has a lot to do with efficiency, and you know, and that's related to your profit. So if you if you're forced to make small batches all the time, it, it's harder to make a, a living. Are you doing those every day or every few days? Well, the, the number of days we bottle right now. Of course, you're talking to me in uh, what is it February? <laughs> yeah, this is the midwinter. So we've been bottling two days a week now. That's all we need to do. Is it different in the summer? Yeah. Yeah, then you're bottling uh, four days a week. Why in the summer? Why is it more popular then? Because of the gatherings? More thirst, I think. (laughs) (laughs) People are more dehydrated. They're more active. Uh, So definitely there's more uh, need for liquids and stuff, and and soft drinks fit right in there. So there's always been that seasonal variety. Not only that, but there's we do business with seasonal accounts, you know, campgrounds, seasonal kind of business that are closed for the for the winter months. So that's going to slow you down too. So between those two things, uh, it's a very seasonal type of business. What's next for you guys? Getting out, <laughs> getting out. We're, we've been for sale for a long time. We know that we couldn't do this forever, and we've known that there's not another generation. Out of the four brothers who ran this for probably 40 years, me and my three other brothers, one of us has passed away, John, and now there's three of us. Uh, I didn't have children, and my brother Chuck didn't. So John and Andy did have children, but they never had any interest in getting in because, number one, they saw us working. 60 hours a week and they knew that we weren't making an awful lot of money you know we, we drive older cars we own our own houses and stuff but uh it doesn't look like the model that a young person would say i can't wait to get into that and that's what happens with things like that and, and you see that in farming too uh you know they see the uh, a farmer their dad working so hard and they're land rich and money poor so they they might sell some land periodically to a developer to make things come out and so you know it's not people climbing on top of each other to see who's going to get control of the farm 
and that, that's, I think that's a little bit of our uh, experience, too. If you're looking for a buyer, what are you looking for in that person? I, well, my personal thing is I, want, I would like to have a buyer that has a historic mind that appreciates the, the reputation we've built and doesn't want to just destroy that and, and say, wow, I love the formulas. I think I'll take the formulas, get a hold of the company, and then shut down what they do and take it to California and make some real money. That, that type of thing. I, you know, a venture capitalist type of person, personally, I, I wouldn't have any interest in passing it on to that type of, I'd rather have a person that can at least c continue the legacy that we've developed through the years where people appreciate who we are. Have you found that person yet? Well, we think so. <laughs> you think so? We, we do, yeah, we have a local guy that's in the area that's already done something very positive with another uh, rundown little place. And he's got the money and the energy and, and ability to to do that kind of a thing. So we've been talking a little bit, and I'm hoping that that's the one that does it. Uh, you know, my, my brothers, I'm not sure that they, you know, that they would value that as opposed to somebody who's going to pay, uh, uh, you know, 50% more. So you know, if you're just thinking money, then you want to get the, the top dollar. If you're thinking uh, maintaining what, our, our legacy and stuff, then uh, you, you might let something like go. I would vote for that. Last question, and I want it to be a fun one. Can you pick a favorite flavor, and what is it? Uh, I think that one of the best tasting things we make, believe it or not, is called Red Lightning. It's an energy drink that's not dangerous. Most of the energy drinks are loaded with caffeine, and there's been problems. Uh, sometimes you get these young males that hang around convenience stores. They dare each other to drink three monsters, and they chug them down, and they're on the ground with a heart palpitation and emergency room visit. So when I made the one we did, I asked the chemist who had the pharmaceutical blend to make it, can you get the caffeine down? So our energy drink is similar to Coke and Pepsi. It's about 5-10% less caffeine, so it couldn't happen where we have that kind of a call saying, there's somebody in the hospital you put in there. That I don't need. But it's a wonderful, tasty drink. It's, it really, it's got a, a wonderful flavor. I, I say, does it remind you of a fruit roll-up? And people go, yeah, that tastes like a fruit roll-up. <laughs> you know what else I love? I think that it's so fun. You've got a sarsaparilla. You've got something called Lime Ricky. Yes, Lime Ricky is an old-fashioned soda that probably was designed as a mixer. It's quite tart. It's got a nice lime flavor to it, a nice aroma, and it's a little bit sour. We have another lime, the regular lemon and lime, that's a deeper green, and all bottlers in the old days had a lemon and lime. You had to have the color. You know, we're a retro company, so we try to make products that are bold, bright, flavorful, and bring back the good old days. That's what we're trying to do here. And Lime Ricky has got a following. It's, you could put gin or vodka in it, or you can drink it plain. Bill, I've loved our conversation. Is there anything that we didn't get to? Yeah, I, I would like to mention the fact that uh, just the same trend that occurred in the beer business, where all of a sudden you got people who are not necessarily allegiant to Budweiser and Miller, uh, the microbrews that are around. And we have quite a few uh, microbrew companies that draw people to their place and they carry our soda too because some of the kids that are coming with them can have a root beer or a lemonade or something like that at the place so uh you know I, I don't know if i can name them but i bet there's at least a dozen microbrews that carry our our product and that's a good match uh right there you know it's another business that's non-corporate and, and that's what I like. Spotlight Connecticut with Morgan Cunningham embracing what's fun with Connecticut on WTIC News Talk 1080.